so much injustice and unrest. How should we as believers think and act? And a question about the essential nature of church gatherings. This is On Life, A Unified Heterogeneity with Jamie Sinclair, Episode 4. Welcome. Hey, here I am coming at you from Canton, New York. Uh, Real quick housekeeping note, if you have any feedback or thoughts or questions for me regarding the podcast, please shoot me a text. Uh, As I've mentioned a number of times, I've got a phone number set up. The text goes straight to my email labeled podcast. Uh, So you can text this number, 315-566-0056. So this has been a a heavy season. Um, I want to start by just noting uh, George Floyd's death, uh, the, the horrific tragedy. I believe it was a week ago yesterday, so eight days ago now, that uh, George Floyd died. And um, I-, I saw that video early on. I don't necessarily recommend you watch it. That, that said, it certainly watching it really just conveys how, 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 sad and, and gross it was. And I just, I want to call all of us right now, first and foremost, um, to pray for justice, to pray for peace. I've been praying. I know the church has been praying. I want to call us and encourage us. Let's continue. Join with many in prayer in this season. Uh, I, I had a specific question come in regarding George, Flo- George Floyd, and I've had many people just ask, what are my thoughts? Um, here's one question that came in pretty early on. <clears throat> I can't bring myself to watch the George Floyd footage, but I'm really curious about your take on bystanders in such a situation. The question being, at what point, when harm is being done by those in authority, do we have the ethical or legal right to interfere? If I were watching George presumably being suffocated to death by an indifferent police officer, would I, should I, could I take action even risking personal harm or death? Great question. Um, I'm I'm thankful I've never been in a position where I needed to uh, really act on something this difficult, and I, I would imagine most of us are in that situation. Um, you know, fortunately, we're not in a context where there are millions of incidents like this every year, but there are too many, and they happen. And I think it's it's right and appropriate for us to think about them. First, I think we need to start by recognizing this. Human life is valuable. In Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating the world. And in Genesis 1.27, specifically, we, we see at the, like, the pinnacle of creation, God creating man, male and female. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. George Floyd was a man created in the image of God. Part of what's so so ugly and horrific about what happened last week was just the, the callous disregard shown by these police officers towards a man full of dignity and worth. And it, it should cause something to rise up within us as men and women of God that calls out for justice, that says this is wrong. Uh, they're, they're, he, he's worthy of respect and dignity and He's a man created in the image of God. Uh, the, the way things, yeah, so we just start with that clear recognition of the value of human life. 
Now, the question here is specifically, what what is our responsibility? What is appropriate for us as potential onlookers to an event like this? There were people watching. That's that's how we have this video footage. Um, Some believers, uh, just great men and women of God, maintain a very strict nonviolent ethic, uh, meaning they would find it entirely inappropriate to uh, intercede in any sort of physical capacity, although that wouldn't mean they weren't able to to say things. Um, I, I, although I, I, I find a non-ethic, non-violent ethic, um, compelling in ways I, I have not been fully persuaded. And, and the Bible really isn't clear in prohibiting violence to defend and help those who need help. In fact, what we see are we are we see clear calls to pursue justice and to defend others, and, and barring a specific prohibition, uh, it, it seems to me that very possibly at times even using physical violence could be appropriate. In Isaiah chapter one verse seventeen, we read a message to the people of God: Learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless plead the widow's cause. And certainly much of this is walked out in a very nonviolent, it's, it's prayer, it's speech, but there may be moments when in the midst you're watching something go down and you're like, I'm going to step in, I'm going to tackle somebody, I'm going to push somebody away. There, there may be a, a moment for that. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, we read, When it is in your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. There, there, it is right and appropriate for us to, to take action and to step out, to pursue justice, to, to help those in need, uh, to, to lend good to one who is in need. And so, yeah, we certainly have responsibilities, the bystanders had responsibilities. By the way, I, from what I can tell watching the video, it seems like the, the bystanders um, did, did a really good job. But just for the sake of thinking through this a little bit more, uh, largely the responsibility to pursue justice, to do good, uh, it does not include any sort of violence. Um, but maybe at times, and by violence, I even mean like stepping in and like, trying to restrain somebody who's killing somebody else. That would be physical violence on our part. Uh, are there ever moments for that? And again, some Christians hold very strictly to a nonviolent ethic. Uh, certainly you can make a case for that from scripture, but but the Bible is not black and white on the issue, and I'm thus far unpersuaded. But we certainly want to be really careful and and careful and and cautious when it comes to using violence, even to defend those who are being violated. Uh, there's been a theory put together, not regarding interpersonal uh, altercations, but actually regarding nations that go use violence against one another, and it's called just war theory. And just war theory recognizes, yeah, there, there may be times where it's even appropriate for a nation to use uh, physical violence against another nation, but we want to do so in a way that's, that's very careful. And, and so th- the Bible does not uh, spell out kind of like, hey, here's like the list of, okay, now you can go to war. 
Uh, Certainly we see physical violence in the Old Testament used for many good purposes. Even the New Testament in Romans chapter 13, it talks about the government carrying the sword not in vain. Um, and, And there's a theory that's been worked on over centuries called just war theory. And there are seven uh, components to just war theory. And I just want to walk through them briefly because although not a perfect analog, um, there is something very analogous in the reasoning behind should two states potentially get into conflict? It's, it's in many ways analogous to, to should two persons. Um, the first one is, is there a just cause? Uh, obviously, it's just gross sin to use violence against someone because you don't like the way they look. Uh, because you want something they have. Um, There's a million reasons that violence against another person is evil and vile. But there may be moments where it's, no, I'm using this violence because they are, they're they're killing somebody, they're torturing someone, they're they're violating someone, and I'm trying to defend somebody. Like, so is your cause just? Secondly, um, it says, look at the comparative justice. Uh, Recognizing that situations are often complex and nuanced. Um, is, is there clearly an aggrieved party? Uh, you know, if two people are in a scuffle, it can be really easy just to naturally defend your friend. Um, but, but thinking through it, is, is my friend clearly the aggrieved party in this situation? Uh, is, if there's not a clearly aggrieved party, it may not be as appropriate to step in and try to intervene physically. Uh, nextly, a legitimate authority. And in, in, when it comes to just war theory, uh, it's recognized that, yeah, random people shouldn't just be going to war with other people. But I would say that this legitimacy, legitimacy extends. Uh, similarly, it would be really inappropriate for us to be like, hey, I heard somebody did something bad, so I'm going to go hunt them down and execute justice on my own. Like That's just that's vigilante justice. It's foolish. It's going to cause problems. In some ways, part of what happened with Ahmaud Arbery a couple of weeks ago was they were not the legitimate authority in that situation, even if he was a criminal, which, by the way, has not been demonstrated. But it, there was a, it was not legitimate for them to try to, to execute any sort of arrest. Uh, now, now, if they were like present while he was beating somebody... Yeah, they would have a legitimate authority to say, like, I'm going to step in and I'm going to defend. But it's different when you're just pursuing a, a hunch or a suspicion. So just cause, comparative justice, legitimate authority. Fourthly, right intention. Basically, the theory recognized that not only do you need a just cause, but your motive should line up with it. You might find some situation like, hey, we're going to protect Kuwait from Iran, but are you just getting involved for oil? You know, like, and so like, unfortunately, right intention is somewhat a contemplative, introspective, like, God, like, help me make sure my motives are pure not always easy to judge from the outside. Fifthly, a probability of success. Um, part, as, as people have considered war and the cost of war and the fact war is just ugly and something we want to avoid as much as possible, don't just go to war because there might be a good reason to go to war. But if going to war is likely just going to actually fail and, and bring a lot of misery and death and, and actually not achieve any sort of success, uh, maybe going to war is not a good idea. Similarly, um, Stepping in and trying to intervene physically in a situation where you're like, the most likely all that means is a lot more people get hurt. Uh, th- that could bring some, th- that would make me pause and consider whether or not to even get involved. Uh, th- the sixth principle is last resort. Try other things first. In our 
example, it would be say something before you're swinging. Uh, call the police before you, you know, you, you take that shot. Like th- there's a sense of uh, don't just use violence as the first resort when you see something bad going down. Use it as a last resort. And then finally, in just war theory, it's proportionality. And by proportionality here, what they mean is um, not only is there a probability of success, but are the anticipated benefits worth the anticipated cost? And, and there's a sense of count the cost first. And is this actually going to do, is it likely to do more good than bad? And so it's, it's kind of similar to, to point five. Again, this theory was put together to consider war. But I think it gives us some things to think through when you're in a situation where you're seeing something uh, evil going down and you have the potential to intervene physically, you think like, is this definitely evil? Yes. Okay, comparative justice, is there clearly an aggrieved party that I'm defending? Yes. Legitimate authority, in this case, like, am I actually witnessing something bad? Yes. Right intention, are you doing this out of spite or, or hatred for the offender? Or are you doing this out of love for everybody involved to, to see justice and peace in this situation? Uh, probability of success. Is, is you stepping in actually likely to help the situation or is it just going to make everything worse uh, and, and get you hurt too? Uh, last resort, have you tried to, to make an appeal? Have you tried to diffuse? And then, and then the proportionality, uh, not only are you likely to succeed, but given success, is it likely to actually be a, 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 a a better situation. And obviously we cannot perfectly forecast these things, but the things that are likely that, that are worth considering. If I had been present, I'm not sure what I would have done. Um, uh, it, it's hard to even imagine standing there, running your camera, watching a man, literally watching a man die while somebody's kneeling on his back, seemingly indifferent, I don't know. You know, I, I did watch the video. Um, I don't recommend everyone watch it, but uh, certainly if, if you feel like you might be able to, it's, it's, it's very informative. It's, it's heartbreaking. One of the things you see is there are some bystanders who really get quite, uh, quite in the face of the, the police officers and, and are really, uh, they're stepping up and, and trying to say something on behalf of Floyd. They became very vocal. In fact, I even wondered at one point, like maybe if they backed off, the, the second police officer would have looked over and be able to do something about Floyd. But uh, he was almost probably afraid that the bystanders might do something in terms of a physical altercation. And so he was distracting it. I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult situation. I can't imagine being there if attacking the police physically would have helped at all. Uh, the, the probability of success was low. They, they could have pulled out mace or tasers or even a gun. In fact, not only would have uh, trying to intervene physically probably not succeeded, but even if somehow it had succeeded in getting the officer off of Floyd, I'm not sure it would have succeeded in saving his life, and it very likely could have led to a lot of other people dying. And so even with the 2020 hindsight, Probably what the bystanders did, um, very vocally uh, exhorting the police officers to change their behavior and calling out to the reality that uh, George Floyd was dying and, and, and videotape, like recording this thing so that uh, justice could be served in the situation. That was probably 
the best response. I, I hope that at some level helped walk through a good thinking to the question of what is the responsibility on bystanders, recognizing the value of life, recognizing our call to pursue justice and do good, um, but also seeing that in this situation, physically intervening likely would have been a bad decision. And so I, I think I commend the bystanders. They did a, it would have been hard to be in that situation. So upsetting, so frustrating. Um, but I, I think they probably did the right thing. Now, one of the, the things I've, I've seen in, in that aftermath of this is uh, the, the, oh, I'm, I'm actually blinking on the officer's name, Chauvin, Chauvin, um, the one who was on top of George Floyd as he died. He's been charged now with third degree murder. I've seen some people wonder, you know, say it should have been first degree murder. It's important when things like this are happening to realize that first degree, second degree, third degree, manslaughter, these all have, these all have definitions. Uh, they don't simply mean like how upset am I or how bad was this thing? Um, first degree murder means premeditated. And obviously this wasn't premeditated. Second degree means intentional. Um, I, I think one could debate that, but it would be really hard to prove that this was intentional. Third degree, I'll actually read the specific definition of third degree murder in the Minnesota statutes. It's chapter 609, section 195. This is a third degree, murder in the third degree. Whoever, without intent to affect the death of another person, causes the death of another by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life, is guilty of murder in the third degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 25 years. This is the charge that Chauvin, I'm almost positive that's his name, was arrested on. And this seems like a, a fairly fitting charge. Uh, as long as they can, with the autopsy, I've seen the preliminary results, but as they investigate the situation, if they can show that his actions, that just that gross uh, knee on neck hold for like nine minutes, they can show that that was at some level the, the cause of death. Uh, clearly what we see is him evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. And that would be third degree murder. And one of the things to consider here, so second degree, you know, it could be easy to watch this and be like, oh, he purposefully murdered him. Um, there are standards of confidence required to take various action. And this is a very good thing, by the way. I think we all know this. I just looked up on Wiki as like, what are the various standards in the United States? Some evidence, reasonable indications, reasonable suspicion, reasonable to believe, probable cause, some credible evidence, preponderance of evidence, clear and convincing evidence beyond reasonable doubt. These are various standards for for uh, various government officials to take actions. And in order to convict someone of a crime, you need to show beyond reasonable doubt that they're guilty. And although I think you could say there's some credible evidence that this is second degree murder, uh, to show beyond a reasonable doubt, I would think even making the third degree murder case could be challenging in a court of law. Uh, and this might seem frustrating and confusing at first, but just a, a quick thought. We have 
I think we do have a policing problem and a criminal justice problem in America. It could be a lot worse if we didn't have standards like this. Right now, our, our criminal justice system is actually, it is weighed in the favor of the defendant. Um, it, it is weighed in such a way that uh, it, it purposefully allows more guilty people to go free than innocent people to go to jail. And, and, and so like standards like this, even, uh, you know, there, there was a situation locally. I live in kind of the middle of nowhere, New York. I'm guessing most of you who are listening are in the North country. Also, um, very tragically, almost 10 years ago, there was a, a child who was murdered in Potsdam, New York. And there was an investigation and a trial. Uh, there, there were a couple of suspects, another theory, um, ultimately, there was one person who was tried and was not found guilty. And I, I know people who, I was not uh, personal friends with the family of, of the child who was murdered. I know people who were, um, and, and people had very strong feelings about who was guilty and justice. Unfortunately, in this situation, no one at this point has been convicted of murder. Uh, sadly, in, in this age, justice is often fleeting. That's why we, as the people of God, we pray for justice, we pursue justice, but our ultimate hope is that one day Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. Justice will be executed. Uh, It's a a hope that we have as the people of God. But there there are situations like this, and the thing is this, what if the guy that everybody thought was guilty on a hunch, what if he was innocent? I'm glad he was found like not guilty. Because unless we're positive beyond a reasonable doubt, how tragic would it be for a system to put him in jail as an innocent man? That happens once in a while, and it breaks my heart and, and utterly frustrates me. I've, I've read multiple stories of people on death row who are then found innocent decades later. And it's, it is an absolute travesty when you see something like that happen. And I'm glad, I'm thankful that our system at some level is weighed in favor of the defendant. And what that means though, in this case with, with George Floyd and um, the officer who was on top of him, uh, executing a, a very just gross looking maneuver, like with his knee on his neck. What it means is that uh, he will only be convicted of what can be demonstrated beyond a reasonable doubt. And that can be frustrating in ways, but the system overall is actually a really good system. I just wanna note that for the moment. So how do we progress? Like here we are, we see this, this situation and the frustration and we see it in light of a pattern. There's George Floyd, but there's also Philando Castile and, and Sandra Bland and Eric Garner and, and Walter Scott. And, and, and we see this, this pattern, this frustration. And in a future episode, I, I might talk about biblical pro- approach to questions of race in America today. That is a, a, a large and... and uh, complex and nuanced topic itself. Uh, right now, what I want to do is I want to talk about policing because for years now I've tracked cases like this and, and many others. And I've seen that there are a lot of great officers in America, men and women who are laying down their lives to serve their communities and see peace and justice. But there is a clear thread of of over-militarization of the police, of, of a, a thread of violent and callous disregard for life 
amongst the police, and then a system that doesn't do a good job of holding these, these problems accountable, seeing people go free. One recent tragedy, a young woman named Brianna Taylor, she was shot, I believe she was in Kentucky. This just happened in the past few weeks. Maybe you heard about it. Uh, there was a police, a no-knock warrant that was served. And she and her, her boyfriend or husband, I don't remember their, their relationship, they were in, in bed. It was like, and the police come in and thinking there's an intruder to coming to the house, the, the, the young man starts defending themselves and, and shooting back at the police. And in the process, Breonna Taylor is, is shot a number of times and, and killed. And she was, she was a perfectly innocent young woman. In fact, the police found no drugs at this house that they were searching for drugs. You want to know why? It was the wrong house. They went to the wrong property, broke in without knocking in the middle of the night, uh, awoke this young couple who, fearing for their lives, defend themselves, and one of them ends up shot and killed by the police. The young man shot one of the officers and is now being charged with attempted murder. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's, it's terrible, and it had nothing to do with race. It was, it was a... The no-knock warrant system, generally speaking, is a terrible police practice. They went to the wrong address. The police caused this problem. This, this is a problem of the police department and a, and a pattern of policing. It's not like a particular officer's fault. There's something wrong, and this system needs to be, it needs to be held accountable, and we need to pursue change. Um, th there was another situation that some of you, probably most of you, have not heard of. Uh, a man named Tony Tempa, a few years ago in Dallas, uh, an almost identical situation to what happened with George Floyd last week. Um, down on the ground, face down, an officer kneeling on his spine. Uh, in the process, he dies. The, the officer's kneeling on him for minutes after he's passed away. Um, at one point after they, they, the, an ambulance comes and they move him up, they're like, is he even breathing? And one officer says, I hope I didn't kill him. And then the other officers laugh callous disregard for life. I don't think they intentionally were killing him. And, and I doubt that Chauvin was intentionally killing George Floyd, but, but there is recklessness and a callous disregard for life. And it's, and it's terrible. And this happened in Dallas just a few years ago. Um, the, the man, Tony Tempa, who died, he was white. So it didn't make headlines the same way George Floyd has. Uh, but what it shows is this, there is a problem with some of the practices being used. There's a problem with a callousness towards life. Those officers they're still serving. Like something should have been done. If, if that situation had blown up and there's a stink, maybe the George Floyd situation wouldn't have even happened. I want to tell you about another situation. Again, just in the past few years, Google it. Daniel Shaver was shot in Arizona. Um, again, I don't recommend watching the video. It is horrifying. Um, uh, I, I tend to be able to kind of... Uh, some of my friends jokingly call me a robot. I can kind of uh, disconnect from emotions and I can, I can watch the footage just as like almost an investigator to see what happened. It is terrifying. This, this young man, Daniel Shaver, he had a BB gun in a hotel room. Probably shouldn't. Maybe even he, he's guilty of, of uh, foolishly waving it around near the window and scaring somebody. So the police come. The police come and he, he exits the, the room and he's kneeling on the ground in a hotel hallway. The police are, I don't know, maybe 15 feet from him with a, with a 
AR-15 like weapon trained on him and, and you see the body cam footage and they're calling to him these strange instructions like cross your legs behind you and stand up and reach your hands out forward. Okay, now crawl to us. And at one point the officer said, if you make one mistake, I'm going to shoot you. And at one point, while while Daniel is crawling towards them on his knees, his he's wearing some like gym shorts, and they, they seem to be kind of like catching on the the carpet as he's crawling on his knees. And he reaches down to pull up his gym shorts, and the officer shoots him five times. Um, it, it's very clear from watching the video he is scared. He is fully compliant. He is unarmed. That while his hands were in the air, the the air, the officers could have come forward and handcuffed him. And there was there was absolutely no need for this. And this is what's super ridiculous: is not only that there was a a bad cop who made a terrible and like murderous decision in that moment, but here's what's really grievous to me: is that after the fact. The officer ended up being briefly rehired to the force, and then he retired on disability, claiming PTSD from the incident and the trial. And now he's living on pension in the city uh, in Arizona. Like, that is disgusting to me. There there was another situation, uh, just again, within the past few years, I believe in North Carolina or South Carolina, maybe, uh, a man named Walter Scott was gunned down. he, he wasn't threatening the police at all. He was literally running away from the officer and the officer shot him several times in the back. The back. And again, the, the, the instance is, incident in itself is as horrific and tragic. And something in me rises up and says, justice. And what we saw was the officer went to trial and even with video of second degree murder, it was a hung jury. There is a problem and, and, and certainly there's racial components to some of these instances, but Daniel Shaver was white. Tony Temple was white. There, there's a thread of, of, a, of an overly militarized and slightly violent, uh, unnecessarily violent, and then totally callous towards the value of human life. There's a thread of that in policing nationwide. And again, I'm, there are tons of men and women who serve who are admirable and honorable, and I value them. I, I thank you. Anybody who's listening to this who's an officer... I want to encourage you. Thank you for your hard work. I want to encourage you, please continue to serve honorably, even in the midst of a lot of difficulty and a lot of misunderstandings. We need good police officers, but there are some bad ones. And there's a system in place where often the bad officers end up rehired. They end up living on pensions. They go to trials and the the jury ends up getting hung. Like there's, there's something wrong and out of place. There's a thread that has to be dealt with. And I think what's, what's significant though is in order for us to make progress, uh, not only does this need to be identified and, and there's this broad threat, not simply some of the, the uh, racist moments, but the broad threat of there's something wrong in, in, in policing and criminal justice in America. We need some real reforms moved towards. Uh, one of the things that concerns me at times with with protests and especially stuff that's just on social media is uh, I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but I feel like a lot of it is just to make the, the, the protester or the poster feel better about themselves. I'm like, what are we actually moving towards? I want to see real reform. And I've been calling for this, by the way, for years. I, I, I can't say I've been doing this for decades, but probably for about 12 or 13 years, I have been fairly keenly following situations like this and, and, and trying to find ways to reform things. I'm really, by the way, I, I will note a year and a half ago, uh, Congress passed and President Trump signed into law a bill called the First Step Act. 
Uh, I'm a little fuzzy on the details. It was a year and a half ago, but I really liked that law. And, and what it did was it uh, it allowed uh, inmates to get out a little bit earlier on good behavior and tried to improve their uh, their experience post uh, prison. And and so it, it changed things like parole. The, the goal was to reduce recidivism rates. And I'm like, I'm 100% in favor of things like that. I'm in favor of decriminalizing, uh, re- removing like uh, cannabis from the, you know Schedule A uh, prohibited substances. I just think it leads to a lot. It, it's available to everybody. Uh, all that making it a Schedule A substance does is lead to no knock warrants being served on the wrong houses and people getting shot. Like, let's make some, let's take some real action. Here's a thought that I just heard somebody propose recently that I found interesting. What if police officers carried their own liability insurance? Meaning in a situation where an officer gets into some sort of altercation and somebody dies, rather than the city potentially footing the bill if they're found guilty or to have some sort of uh, reckless involvement, what if their insurance agency was footing the bill? What this would do is two things. Firstly, it would slightly decrease the the malincentive cities have. Like right now, what city wants to prosecute and find guilty one of its officers when that means it could be on the hook for tens of millions of dollars in payout? The, the same city that's supposed to be pursuing justice is also the one that would pay out if there was an injustice like that that's just a perverse incentive and and so now what if the city was pursuing justice and somebody else paid out if the officer was acting unjustly unjustly excuse me like so so there's that could help itself but secondly it would also mean insurance companies who are on the line would have financial incentives to see officers get extra trainings, to take complaints seriously. One of the things I saw with Chauvin, the, the, the officer who likely killed George Floyd last week, was I saw he had over 10 serious complaints on his record. If I'm insuring somebody, an officer with 10 serious complaints, either his rates are going to skyrocket to the point where he can't afford to be an officer anymore, or I won't even insure him at all. Like... Like, let's uh, use the market to improve some of these situations. And, and so I, I think uh, tweaking the way we fight the war on drugs so we don't f- serve up these, like, really r- ridiculous no-knock warrants that are leading to deaths, uh, changing the way liability, financial liability, is carried for police officers that actually incentivizes, causes one group, an insurance agency, to train and uninsure bad cops and then also removes the the malincentive for cities to not really pursue justice with their full force. Like some changes like these, I'm like real practical, simple, everybody can agree on. These aren't controversial. Like let's make some changing that actually improves policing, that actually improves criminal justice. I'm a fan. I hope you are too. Like there's clearly, again, I'm a big fan of, I have lots of, I shouldn't say lots. I have a number of friends in law enforcement, retired, active. Uh, there, are, there are many honorable and good people serving. But it's clear when you look at instances like this that there's, there's a thread. And over the, the recent decades, you can see again and again and again situations that shouldn't exist that allow things like this to happen. And then a, a system that doesn't 
do a good job of holding people accountable. And it's like, what can we change systemically to change, to like undo these situations? So let's take some real steps. Okay. Uh, I have a lot, I have many more thoughts. I'm sure you do too. We are over half an hour into the podcast. I want to tackle, tackle one more question that came in. In future weeks, maybe we'll talk more about policing and criminal justice. We'll, we'll definitely talk more about um, what is a, how Christians should, should think and approach questions of race in 21st century America. But for now, let's move on to the next question. Somebody texted in, why is the church considered essential by the president? I assume they're referencing President Trump's remarks, I don't know, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago now at this point. I read those remarks. I'm too fuzzy on them to remember exactly what he said, but I don't think he necessarily gave much of an explanation himself. What I'm definitely not going to do right now is try to get in the mind of Trump to figure out why he said this. Uh, I think Trump often says things without really even having much of a reason, so I'm not sure. But I think church is essential. And not only do I think church is essential, I think church gatherings are essential. So let me talk about that for a minute. If you look at scripture, let's just start throughout, throughout the Old Testament. You see the importance and the centrality of the gathering of the people of God. Solemn assemblies. In Deuteronomy 16, when it's laying out the Passover on the seventh day, there's a solemn assembly. The, the people gather. Uh, j- just open up a Bible app and search the word assembly or gathering or congregation in the Old Testament. You'll see tons of references, like in Psalm 107, verses 31 and 32. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. There was this regular gathering together of the people of God. When we look to the New Testament, we see the people of God, the church of God, and we see them gathering. Okay, when we look at the New Testament, uh, we see references to the church as the bride of Christ. And, and the universal church is composed of everyone who has been born again into the family of God uh, throughout the ages across the globe. That's the universal church. But we see very clearly a number of times in the New Testament, there, there's the church at Laodicea, the churches in Galatia, the church at Colossi, Colossae, the church at Philippi, uh, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Corinth. We see local churches. And what's a local church? Uh, sometimes people very incorrectly will refer to any time there are some believers that are together. They'll say, this is church. Like, well, you're part of the universal church and maybe you're part of local churches, but just a few Christians that happen to be in the same room at the same time, that's not local church. Uh, local church isn't well, uh, it, it's not textbook defined anywhere in the New Testament. But as we look at local church in the New Testament, we do see what local church is. And I'm actually preaching a series on Sunday mornings at my my church, uh, looking at what local church is. And we see a, a local church is a group of born-again believers who are sharing life together engaging. So one, a group of born again believers, two, who are sharing life together, three, who are engaging in regular corporate practices, and four, who are submitting to biblical oversight, five, 
all for the purpose of growing as disciples of Christ and making disciples from all nations for the glory of God. So one of the things we see there, three, is that they are engaging in regular corporate practices. Part of what local church is, is gathering together for corporate a corporate gathering. It means like the people coming together and being one body to do things and do things like communion and musical worship and teaching the word and uh, laying hands on one another to pray. In fact, the Greek word that is translated church is ekklesia. And ekklesia literally means from, like called from, called out. Uh, and it was, a, it was a word that was used more broadly than just local church in, in ancient Greek. Um, it was a word anytime there was some sort of public gathering where people would leave their homes and go to a space, the public space, and gather together. That was an ecclesia. And, and so what we see is, man, church gathering is it's necessary for just part of who the church is. Part, part of who we are is we're the gathering. The gathering for teaching and for worship and for laying hands on each other in prayer and for the Lord's Supper and for all sorts of things, we gather together. Secondly, we gather because it's literally a biblical command. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so, so the command here is gather together to provoke one another to good works and love. Don't neglect gathering together. Don't neglect this thing. It's, it's a command for us to not neglect this thing, but to gather together to stir one another. Finally, so firstly, it's necessary. It's part of what church is. In fact, the ecclesia means a gathering. Secondly, it's commanded. Thirdly, there is a blessing when the people of God meet. Certainly, we have profound meetings with the Lord, just, just me and God. I, I love just taking walks and talking to God, praying when I'm in the car, like just me and God by myself. Like there are some profound moments. There are also profound moments, just you and a few friends. There's also something uniquely special when the church gathers. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus is talking about in the context of local church and assembly and actually church discipline and bringing something before the church and the authority that sits in the church. And he says this, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. There's something special that happens when the church gathers. So it's a necessary part of local church. It's a command for us as local church. And there really is a blessing when the people of God gather. So yeah. Local church is essential. Local church gatherings are essential. That's my short answer. I have no clue what President Trump was thinking exactly. But there are some thoughts for those of us who want to be thinking well and to be thinking biblically. Uh, These things are important. Hey, uh, I feel like I could talk for like five more hours, but that probably won't be a blessing at the moment. Um, I think we need to do a lot of listening, a lot of praying, but also, I, I want to see this go someplace. I'm seeing the, the, I'm seeing the unrest around the nation. Unrest because of shutdowns just a few weeks ago and like an eagerness to get, go and do something and for Christians to gather. And now unrest just because of recognizing uh, some patterns of, of police violence. And in, in this situation, Chauvin is being investigated and prosecuted Uh, So justice is being pursued here. But again, it's part of a pattern and and people see something. 
My concern with some of the the protests and and certainly I'm concerned about the rioting. And I saw a video clip of a woman in Rochester just a few days ago being punched and beaten with a two by four just because she was a shop owner trying to stop some rioters from breaking into her shop. And just like horrific injustices, like literally just so many injustices in the world around us. Let's pray for justice. Let's pray for peace. One of my concerns with all these protests is I, I hope, I'm praying that these protests succeed in leading us towards greater justice and peace in our nation. I am concerned, though, that there isn't a clear, hey, uh, th- there is a thread of problems in policing, and here's a, a simple, practical, we can all get behind step that we can take. Uh, unfortunately, I, I'm seeing s- some of my friends, people I know who are protesting, th- they're saying all police are bad. Like, uh, that's not a step that most people are going to get. I don't even think most people that are marching are want the abolition of policing. But some people are. And then, and, and I realized, man, if, if you have a thousand people marching for a thousand different things, that march isn't going to accomplish anything. In, in fact, all it might do is stir up a lot more frustration and unrest. Uh, so I, I am praying and hoping for success in us moving towards greater justice and peace. Maybe we, as believers, as we think well about these things can begin proposing and leading in some really clear and, hey, we can all get behind these steps to improve things. Because I, I things need to be improved. Things need to be changed. I see problems, uh, but I actually want to take steps. I don't want to just make myself feel better by, uh, you know, you know, posting something to make myself feel better. I'm not opposed to posting something, but virtue signaling, just posting to make me feel better, that's not admirable. That's selfish. Uh, I, I want to see real changes made in criminal justice reform. I want to see real changes made in policing. And and I hope you're on board with that too, that you don't want to just say things to feel better about yourself, but you want to see real change that leads to greater justice and peace in the world today. Excellent. Well, hey, uh, shoot me messages. I'd love to hear back from some of you. L- let me Give me pushback. Provide extra ideas. Uh, I want to grow together and learn together and really think well about these things. These are big issues, difficult issues. Okay. Hey, go in peace.